if you would. Um, maturity in Christ is the goal of God and what he wants to do in us. Uh, maturity doesn't happen apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And with Jesus comes suffering. And I know that's everyone's favorite topic. That's why we're talking about today, right? Yay, hardships, yay, difficulties, trials, tribulations. Um, and yet does, God does his best work in that and through that. So th that's what we're going to be looking at in Acts 21. So if you ever you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, let me share with you an interesting story this week I had read. I don't know if you caught it, but uh, a young 12-year-old Palestinian boy was riding his bike and got hit by a car, and um, he suffered what they call an internal decapitation, where the ligaments connecting his skull to his spine came undone. And uh, they rushed this 12-year-old Palestinian boy to a hospital in Jerusalem where he was treated by two Israeli doctors who saved his life. He is now walking as a result of the expertise of two Israeli doctors. Now, what's amazing is not only what happened, I never even heard of this before, but the fact that there were two men who were able to treat this Palestinian boy and save his life. Perhaps what's more amazing is what I've put the emphasis on in telling you about this news story. Palestinian, Israeli. This had nothing to do with religion. This had nothing to do with politics. This has nothing to do with who you worship. This had to do with saving somebody's life. A Palestinian boy's life was saved by two Israeli doctors. What's the greater miracle here? The fact that this kid is now walking that's a miracle. Perhaps the deeper miracle is two different groups represented in this story came together because something mattered more than politics and religion. A life was at stake, and those things, when lives are at stake, don't matter. Can I get an amen from somebody? I, I share that story with you because what we see today is a situation in which nothing else matters than lives that are at stake. Paul, the apostle, is about to enter into one of the most difficult seasons of his life. And yet what compels Paul to do what he does, glorify God, and seek opportunities to share God's love with others, far surpasses your sexuality, your ethnicity, your voting record. 
What, what compels Paul to love all people as they are, where they are, with the only thing that saves, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, is lives are on the line. And so we turn to Acts 21, and we see Paul enter into a season of adversity, of trials, of tribulations, of difficulties, uh, hostility, violence, and yet the thing that continues to compel Paul is this this opportunity to somehow verbally, non-verbally showcase the love of God in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at four things this morning in Acts 21, starting at verse 27. We're going to finish the chapter. There is a cliffhanger, uh, just FYI, uh, that we will continue next week. But Paul, as you saw last week, submitted to the Jews at Jerusalem plan to somehow communicate unity and harmony, that, that the rumor around town was Paul is against the Jews, Paul's against the law, he's against Moses, he's against circumcision, he's against all the things that the Jewish people held dear. And the Jewish leaders said, hey, we want you to go ahead and, and, and engage in a vow and support others that are doing a vow uh, and just show that you're not against those things. And as we know, Paul was never against those things, but rumors had started circulating. There's misunderstanding afoot. So Paul submits, and even in this submission, as we're going to see today, the plan backfires. And things don't get better for Paul, they get worse. Things don't improve, they deprove. And yet Paul remains resilient. He remains focused. He remains hard-charging as ever. But yet what he demonstrates in the midst of, of these difficulties says something for us. It says something for us, and I think there's four things I want to I tease out of this passage with you this morning, that even in the midst of difficulties and hardships and trials and tribulations, which we're going we're gonna to experience, Jesus promised this. See, we only want to think of Jesus as promising eternal life. He doesn't want us to, you know, we don't want to be reminded of the fact that there's sufferings that are a part of the process. That's how maturity happens. You can never mature apart from hardships and sufferings. Because if you did, you'd be the most incorrigible people, and I wouldn't want to hang out with you. And vice versa. Let's just put that out there. But he does his best work through the trials. And so peace, assurance. Maybe you're here this morning and you're going through a difficult season. Maybe you've come out of one. Maybe you're, you're, you're heading into one and you didn't even know you're heading into one. This is information that I think is so important for us. These are principles that are so important for us that God, if we, if we listen, if we pay attention, these will act as pillars that will help us withstand even the most severe hardships we may encounter and yet experience God's peace, God's assurance in it all. And so four things we're going to tease out, but first let's look at the text. Let's read through it, and I want to go back and kind of talk through it. So that's kind of our, our style at Missio. So if you're here for the first time, welcome. Um, we're going to dive into the scriptures. Acts 21 is where we're going to be. We're going to start at verse 27, and when the seven days were almost over, the seven days were the purification days because Paul had come from Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. The Jews says, you are now rendered unclean. You need to undergo a seven-day cleansing, period. Paul submitted to it. He knows he's clean in Christ, but he's submitting because he's for unity. He's for harmony. So he submits. The seven days are almost over. The Jews from Asia, read that to be Ephesus. We'll talk about that. That was Asia Minor at the time. 
upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitudes and laid hands on him. And this wasn't the laying hands on a loving way. This is laying hands on him in a violent way. They're mad. They're crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against the law and against the temple. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple, which was a no-no, and has defiled this holy place. They're yelling out, come, get this rebel rouser. And they previously had seen him. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Notice that word suppose. That is always a suspicious word. And all the city was aroused, which is a lot of people. This is the time of Pentecost. At, at normal times, the city's 200,000. At Pentecost, 2 million people. The entire city is aroused. All the people rush together, taking hold of Paul. Can you imagine the scene? Paul is being bum-rushed by who knows how many thousands of people. They dragged him out of the temple. They dragged him into the court of the Gentiles. Immediately the doors were shut, which divided the court of Israel from the court of Gentiles. And while they were seeking to kill him, these guys were not holding back. Blood was going to be poured. A life was going to be on the line. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander, to the uh, Roman cohort, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. The Romans didn't want riots. The Romans didn't want chaos. The Romans wanted peace. That's why in the temple in Jerusalem, even today, there's this thing standing called the Antonio Fortress, where there is always on hand a thousand Roman soldiers to keep the peace. The commander gets word of what's happening. At once he took along some of the soldiers and centurions, ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, meaning the Jews that were seeking to kill Paul right there on the spot, they stopped beating Paul. Paul is delivered by, again, an unlikely person, a Roman commander. He says, um, the commander comes down, commander came up, verse 33, took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Now, you remember Agabus in a chapter prior had said, you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to be bound with two, two, two chains. So here's fulfillment, right? They bind him and they begin asking the crowd who this guy was and what he's done. Why all the commotion? But among the crowd were some shouting one thing and some another. They didn't know because they didn't have any ground to stand on. And this is what the, uh, the father of lies does. He creates confusion. He creates chaos. He creates disorder. Sometimes when the people of God are attacked, the world attacks you and they don't know why they're attacking you. They just know they want to get rid of you. You speak truth. You represent something different, right? And so all of a sudden, they were shouting one thing, some another. And when he could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought to the barracks. He's going to bring him into seclusion and among the crowd were, um, and then he said to the, uh, got to the stairs and so it happened that he was carried. He was so beat up that the soldiers had to carry Paul on their shoulders because of the violence done to him. They're carrying Paul's body up these stairs into the barracks to sequester him, for the multitude of the people kept falling behind, crying out, away with him! Literally, let's kill him. This is the same language at the same lo location that the Jews asked for Jesus to be crucified. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? He's just been 
thrown off someone's shoulders. He sat in a chair. Who knows, right? And all of a sudden he says, do I have your permission to say something? Man says to him, oh, you know Greek? He says, you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. It was a highly respected, highly intelligent, highly educated city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. The very people that just were beating me up, seeking to kill me. Do I have your permission to speak to them? And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in Hebrew, saying, to be continued. But may God write his eternal truths upon our hearts because there's four things here we need to stop and take note of. Number one, notice the courage in the midst of pursuing. Courage in the midst of pursuing. Here's not necessarily what Paul's pursuing. Here's who Paul is pursuing. Jesus. And let me just say, when you pursue Jesus, it is a pursuit that involves denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. You have to realize that when you sign up to follow Jesus, yes, there's a crown awaiting you who follow Jesus, but the path to the crown never circumnavigates the cross. The path to the crown always goes through the cross and to the cross. Let me, let me explain this. When you first come to know Christ, it is an acknowledgement of the righteous giving his life for the unrighteous. He becomes the substitute meeting the demands of a holy God living a perfect life without sin, without blame, and he stands in our place because we ourselves could never muster up enough goodness, holiness, righteousness to ever earn God's favor. So we have a substitute who stands in for us, and then he invites you to believe in him. And he takes your sin, forgives you your sins. You now stand righteous before God, not because it's a righteousness of your own, but it's a righteousness given to you by him who is righteous as a gift. That is the gospel. Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, him who didn't deserve to die, chooses to do it for you and me because we can never live godly enough lives on our own. All our works are righteous, are filthy rags. All of us fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So the good news is we have a savior. We have a substitute. You meet Christ at the cross. And you are now free from the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. 
You are free and you are able to stand before God and never will you ever be condemned because Christ is now your advocate. He is your substitute. He is your righteousness. He is your defender. But to think that the cross only has to do with you being declared not guilty, justified, you are mistaken because now the life of a disciple continues to go to the cross, not for salvation, but to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, following Christ, pursuing Christ means you go through the cross initially and you go to the cross daily. If you think following Christ is easy, you're mistaken. But if you've never tasted and see the uneasy road with Christ, you're missing out. I was at a church leaders conference this week because that's what pastors do with their, their spare time, just hang out with other pastors. It's a, it's, a, it's a nasty group, but let me tell you about it anyways. There was a story, and I really liked it. You, you'll become like who you follow. And there's this pastors from all over the state of Arizona. We were in Tucson for the day, and there are pastors from all over, right? If all of a sudden I met Pastor Bill, hypothetical dude, no, 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 no one named Bill there. Maybe there was. I didn't meet him. And all of a sudden I got him, you know, Bill's from Flagstaff, right? And all of a sudden, man, I like Bill, you know, and all of a sudden I ended up in Bill's car. Guess where I'm going with Bill after the conference? Flagstaff. And all of a sudden I go, Wait, this is not where I need to be. Well, why'd you follow Bill? <laughs> Bill's like, I'm going to Flagstaff. Well, all of a sudden, I inadvertently end up hanging out with Bill, and I'm in Flagstaff. There should be no question of why I'm in Flagstaff, because I chose to follow a guy from Flagstaff. When you get in Jesus' car, guess where you're going? You're going to the cross. He, he minces no words. He says, if you're going to follow me, you need to understand it's going to be a difficult journey. When, when you follow me, it's, it's going to be tough. Father, mother, difficulties, brother, sister, difficulties, people who don't even love God, they're going to hate you. If you think you're immune from suffering, you're, you're in the wrong car, baby. That's why I think a lot of Christians follow some really wonderful people, but they're not following Jesus. And they wonder when hardships happen, like, how did I get here? You're not lockstep with Christ. If anyone's going to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus summarizes, summarizes the journey in one verse. And this is what Paul was dead set on, on pursuing. Courage is formed in a heart that's knit to Jesus no matter what the circumstances may be. Because here's your main concern. Not what's happening, but the main concern is who you're following. Paul had made up in his mind years ago. Matter of fact, when he was first saved, Acts chapter 9, Jesus says to Paul, your life is going to be one of suffering. How's that for like, hey, invitation? I, I so want to do this, Jesus. Your life is going to be difficult. But Paul was ready for it because he realized how much was done for them. There was nothing he wouldn't give, even his own life, 
as a response to what has been shown to him as far as the love of God. If I may remind you, just look back a chapter. And I put the wrong verse down in your notes. I'm, I apologize for that. There's a misprint. I put Acts 20, uh, 20, 13. Some of you are like, what does this have to do with this message? Nothing. I, I, it's a misprint. But there's, an, there's a verse in Acts 20. Look at verse 24. Acts 24. Uh, 2024. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify to the what? Uh, Psalmly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's courage is that he's no longer considering his life worthy of anything. He considers his life of being a, a opportunity to share the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, if you back up even, even further to um, uh, 20, uh, 21, no, come closer, 20 verse, uh, let's see, 13. So earlier in this chapter, Paul says, when they're pleading with him, don't go to Jerusalem, because the believers were thinking, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer, because they've adopted the suffering-free Christianity, which is no such thing. Don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. And Paul's going, I'm going to Jerusalem, and if I suffer, then that's, that's fine because my Savior suffered even more for me. Look what he says in 21.13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, following Christ will always lead you to the cross. The good news is this, the cross is not the end of the story. There's a crown. And for those who eagerly anticipate his arrival, oh, the crown of righteousness is going to be rewarded to you. This world is not all there is, amen? This life is not all there is. There's something greater, and you are being prepared even right now in Christ for that eternal weight of glory that is waiting for you, and no amount of suffering that you could ever experience here will ever compare to what God has saved up for those who deny themselves and take up their cross and follow the Son. It's almost like we should just say amen and go home right now. But I got three more points, so here we go. So number one, Paul in his mind has, has said, I'm going to follow Christ, and following Christ means you will go wherever God needs to take you even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death. But the good news is, and the psalmist says, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I know you're with me. Greater is he who is with you than any of the weight of the circumstances you may be experiencing. Point number two is this, calm in the midst of persecution. Now all crap's going to happen. All, it's going to break loose. Right? He's, he's, he's submitted to the church leaders. He's going to do their vow. He's going to enter those seven days of purification. He's going to support the four other guys who take in the Nazarite vow, which is really, really expensive. And, and he's, he's honoring the law of Moses. He's honoring the temple. He's honoring the people. He's doing everything. Here's the irony that he's being accused he's not doing. And yet, even sometimes when you do what's right, it's not responded to well how do you stay calm when not only are you accused of doing something you didn't do but perhaps even physically assaulted so much so by those who want you dead look at verse 27 so here they are they're in the temple area 
Seven days were almost done. Paul's there. And upon seeing Paul in the temple, all of a sudden the Jews from Asia, these are Jews from Ephesus. How do we know this? Because they recognize Paul and they recognize Paul's friend Trophimus who was from Ephesus. And can you imagine with all the people that, that they would see Paul and they see and they go, we're drawing conclusions. This is the guy we tried to get rid of Ephesus. If you remember Ephesus, a riot ensued and they wanted to drag Paul in and they wanted to kill him. So this is not Paul's first rodeo, or riot, I should say. I mean, this is not his first riot. And yet there's a sense of he's not fighting, he's not resisting. He, things are happening to him that I'm sure he wished weren't happening to him, but yet there's a calmness, and even on the other side, which we're going to talk about here. So they see him, they call him out, they grab him, they're crying out, men of Israel, come to this, come to our aid. This man is the one who is really speaking against the law of Moses. He's against the people, he's against the law, he's against the temple. For they had previously, in Trophim, they've seen Trophimus in the city. They didn't even see him in the temple, but they thought, well, Paul's hanging out with him, so obviously... He's taking them into the place where non-Jewish people aren't allowed to go. There was a little wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. It's about four and a half feet tall. And there was a sign posted on it on, uh, at frequent intervals that said, if a non-Jew enters into the court of Israel, Israel has the right to execute that person on the spot. It's interesting that Paul would write about that wall in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ came to tear down the wall that divided the Jew and the Gentile. Amen? So here's Paul being accused of something he didn't do. They're drawing conclusions about something that they supposed happened. How do you stay calm when these sort of accusations are being leveled against you? Right? Because here's what happens. Accusations lead to exaggerations, which then lead to suspicion, then leads to overreaction. And this is what's happened to Paul. Here's the accusation. He's against the Jews. He's against the law. He's against the temple. Can I tell you right now? Paul was not against those things if you thought the people belonging to a group, the law, following the law, and the temple doing religious activity could save you. Here's why Paul later on wanted to speak to the crowd. He's not against the people, the law, or the temple. He's against them if you think that's your way to salvation. Christ came to make a new people. Christ came to fulfill the law perfectly. Christ came to be the temple. This temple will be destroyed, but I will rebuild it in three, three days. And they go, it took 46 years for Herod to build this temple. And he says, that's not the true temple. You never meet God by belonging to a group, following the rules, and being consumed with religious exercise. You want to know how you meet God? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? So Paul's going, okay, I'm so not against the, these things that they're accusing me of. As a matter of fact, if I was, I wouldn't be here doing the purification vow. But again, this is where Sin leads people to be insane. If you've never heard me say that, it's one of, my, one of Scott Mor Morganisms. We call them Morganisms. When in sin, you think insane. And it's always dangerous when religious people are more into protecting their religion than following it. We see this today. Even within the church, 
There are more people that want to protect Christianity than follow it. And I almost feel like a modern-day Paul. Again, I'm, not, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul thinks he is. I am. I, I'm the modern-day Paul calling the church out. Because there's people that want to, pr- to protect Christianity, and they don't want to live under it. At the end of the day, they will be sorely, sorely deceived. Christ will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, did we not rally? Did we not protest? Did we not boycott? And Jesus goes, I didn't ask you to do that. Blessed are those who boycott, for they will get their way. (laughs) Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you're being persecuted for boycotting some company, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel for your suffering. But if you're suffering for representing Jesus well in a hostile world, I'll, I'll, I'll feel for you. Paul enters into an arena where he is saying, I, I love these people. I love my heritage. I love my culture. But the self-deception that exists that by belonging to a group, following rules, and being busy with religious activity is going to save you, you are mistaken. So all of a sudden, as the crowd becomes enlarged, it also becomes enraged. And they just want this man dead. And yet there's nothing here of Paul fighting back. There's nothing here of Paul resisting. See, these... These Jews from Asia were going we're to leverage the racial biases and have Paul killed. And yet Paul, like Jesus, who ultimately goes to Jerusalem, where his life is taken, Paul had the courage to follow Jesus, pursue Jesus. And he realized it could end horribly. But he was willing to do that because... Even with Christ, a horrible life here maybe perhaps leads to a greater life there. Luke 21. Check out this passage here. Luke, so Luke who also writes Acts says this in verses 15 through 18. Um, When you're going through difficult times, Luke writes this in chapter 21. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The fact that Paul is calm in the midst of persecution tells us that the Spirit's doing something. Here's what the Spirit does in, in moments like this. Produces a, uh, uh, the, the fruit of self-control. Gentleness. Perhaps one of the indications that you're in Christ is that when things get hot, you stay cool. When things get volatile, you, you stay pretty chill. Right? Because the fruit of the Spirit is not, I'm going to fight back. Look what it says. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. I know. I don't like it either, but it's okay. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Some of you are going, why would anyone want to sign up for this? Look what it says. But not a hair of your head will perish. Look what it, as it continues. Does it continue? That's it. Okay. Here's the promise of Christ. When you go through difficulties, you're going to have an opportunity. 
And it's not for you to, to lash out and, and react and be all violent in return. We don't fight fire with fire. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 2, he did not revile when he was being reviled. He did not lash out when he was being lashed upon. But he kept entrusting himself to him who always judges righteously because at the end of the day, not a hair on your head will perish. God's got you. See, there is no greater peace in a believer's life than in the time of, of tumult and difficulties. You have a peace because you have the Prince of Peace. You have God who these things are not foreign to him. Isn't it amazing that you have a Savior who's not disconnected from your life, but he's ever involved even in the messiness, even in the difficulties? And he promises you this, not a hair on your head will perish. So they're beating Paul up. He is a breath away from extinction. And, and, and granted, he is not a naturally brave man. Let me, let me just tell you about Paul. He was nervous and he feared going into some environments. Because I don't want to paint a picture of like super apostle who, uh, here's a man who had, he trembles with weakness at times. But while I say not a naturally brave man, supernaturally, this is what the Prince of Peace does. When you have peace with God through the Prince of Peace, God, there's nothing anyone could ever do to you to separate you from your eternal connection. We need to hear that today, don't we? We've been fearing men too long. Why do you fear man? You should fear him who's able to take your body and your soul. We're fearing men just because they can take their body. They can't do anything to our souls. This is probably why maturity in Christ has that that hugely soulish aspect of it. We need to cultivate the parts of us that humans can never take away, but God continues to work with and solidify for his glory and your good. Calm in the midst of persecution. To be controlled by a greater reality, the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Check this out. For the love of Christ controls us, does it? Because I'm not just going to sit here and go, oh yeah, that, this is true. Ladies and gentlemen, does the love of Christ control you? Think about that phrase. I'm going I'm to venture and say majority of you, it doesn't. By the way you respond and react to things happening in the world, our country, culture, socials, whatever. Does the love of Christ can tell you, control you? Because if the love of Christ controls you, the love of Christ will be manifest in and through you. Because we have concluded this. The one has died for all. Woohoo, substitute. Remember that? I talked about that. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Here's what a disciple does does not consider their life of anything, but considers life for Christ everything. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. How does Paul stay calm in the midst of enemies? Because these enemies were people who could still be recipients of salvation in Christ. 
He's not going to regard these men. I'm sure he's praying. It doesn't tell us. I'm speculating. And I'm sure he's praying just like Jesus prayed, just like Stephen prayed. Father, forgive these people for they know not what they do. Don't we regard too many people too many times according to the flesh? We see them as sinner, adulterer, homosexual, Republican, whatever. But we don't see them as potential recipients of the grace of God. Please, believer, stop regarding people according to the flesh. See them as a potential new child of God. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we don't regard him like that anymore. Why? Because we've seen who he really is. How do you stay calm in the midst of persecution? You've got to stay connected to the Prince of Peace. You've got to understand that God is even working in our difficulties. For Paul, he's calm because no sacrifice was too great for him to make because of the gratitude that he's received in Christ and what he's done for him. He's going to die for the gospel. But not yet. I'm not, I'm not going to ruin the ending. He's not, he's not going to die yet. But here's the question. How far are you willing to go for the gospel? We may not face a mob like this, and I pray you never will, but we may encounter situations which ten, where tensions are high. Tensions are raised. Frustration and anger are likely to be manifested. The question is this. Will you stand true with Jesus and on the word of God without displaying inappropriate words or actions of your own? Will you in those moments display the love of Christ because the love of Christ controls you? Will you bear the fruit of joy and gentleness and kindness and self-control? You don't use the tactics of the world the world does that. Look how it's ended up. Not any better. We're called to use different weapons. You ever use the weapon of grace? Ooh, it's fun. You ever use the weapon of mercy? It's, it's delightful. You ever use the weapon of kindness? Because these are the weapons that Jesus, Jesus used. As we'll soon see Paul reacts calmly and wants to address his people. Why? Because here's what, here's what controls Paul. Not only the love of Christ, but a love for his own people. Romans 9. Look at this passage. Verses 1 through 4. Paul says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. It's like Paul's ready to say something. He's just like, please believe what I'm going to tell you because what I'm going to tell you, you're not going to want to believe it that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for, in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I love the Jewish people so much that if it could be possible, I would gladly give up my salvation, burn eternally in hell so that my brothers can be saved. If that doesn't hit you, check your heart. It's not possible, but this is the compelling nature 
of love for Christ and love for his people. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, which are all amazing and wonderful things. They, they alone can't save you, but they're reflections of God's character, they're reflection of God's nature, they're reflection of God's heart and his will. Paul says, this is how I can face my enemies with open arms and an open heart. I want them to know Jesus who's the fulfillment of the law, who is the temple, the true temple. Which leads us to point number three, and we'll go through these next ones rather quickly. Because you know what happens to preachers, they start preaching. And sometimes they get excited about what they're preaching. Look out. Third, conduct in the midst of problems. We've already touched upon this. This is why we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But here's what you cannot miss about his, his posture, his patience. Paul politely requests of the Roman commander, after he's been dragged away from this violent mob, after when it was evident that he couldn't walk himself, he's thrown over their shoulders to go up the steps, to be sequestered, to, to have some distance from the chaos. And here's Paul, bloodied and beaten, not able to walk, who says to the Roman commander, may, may I ask a request of you? So, so British, he must have been British, so polite. Right? Paul doesn't come down, do you know who I am? Do you know, he doesn't start, you know, here's my education, here's this, here's this. He basically says, I have a request. May I ask a request of you? Like, super, super polite. Because this is what, again, here's part of the calmness, right, is that you don't have to react. You don't have to, you don't have to get all mad and bent out of shape, right? He remains so cordial in his interactions. The the Jews think Paul's a blasphemer, and yet he still loves these guys, right? Even when they want him dead. He's kind to his enemies. And then here's the Romans. And, and, and here's what it says. Look at what it says in, in verse um, 37. And Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, and he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And all of a sudden, the commander's caught off guard, and he says, You speak fluent Greek. That's what the language, perfect Greek I thought you were somebody else. See, misunderstanding, right? The Jews think he's a blasphemous traitor. The Romans think he is this Egyptian insurrectionist. This is why they said, there's a guy a few years ago who, who gathered an army of 4,000 Sicarion assassins. You ever see the movie Sicario? Ooh, interesting movie. These are, these are daggermen. And these are men that would go into these political crowds and have daggers underneath their robes and at the proper time would come out and assassinate people. This guy raised up an army of 4,000 of them. They were on the Mount of Olives. They were ready to take over the city. And the plan became known. And many of these assassins were killed, but the leader got away. Kind of like a, a modern, uh, uh, an ancient world Osama bin Laden. Like, where is he? And they thought, the commanders were probably talking to each other like, this is our guy. He's come back. The Egyptian insurrectionist. And as soon as he opened his mouth and spoke Greek, they're like, that's not him. 
And I love it because here's how well astute Paul is in knowing his audience. He speaks perfect Greek to the commander who goes, whoa. He connects with this man because he knows that this man speaks Greek, so I'm going to speak Greek to him. And then he shows a little bit more of his cards. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. And the guy knew immediately, like, this is not some just average guy. This is a highly educated person. Why wouldn't I grant your request? Wow, how quickly things change. Because he chose to be calm, and it reflected in his conduct. Ladies and gentlemen, be respectful of others. Be gentle with others. There's no reason to get hostile and volatile and angry and combative and debative. Stay cool. Allow the Lord to work through your pleasantries. There's a good quote right there. Allow the Lord to work through your, your cordial etiquette. Right? Remember Jesus, 1 Peter 2. When he was being attacked, he didn't attack in return. He submitted himself like a lamb led to the slaughter. He submitted himself to God. The man could have denied Paul's request, but he didn't. It's kind of like what Daniel did, chapter 1 of Daniel, if you remember. Daniel, is, his, whole, his whole neighborhood is, is, is destroyed. He's taken into a foreign land under a foreign leader named Nebuchadnezzar, given a foreign name, forced to change a diet. And you remember what Daniel said. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he may not defile himself. Daniel was cordial with these new captors. And he won favor with him. Politeness can take you far. Politeness for the glory of God in the name of Jesus can take you really far. Sometimes. It happened here. And in Paul's mind, he can't help but be thinking, this is the last time I'm going to be in Jerusalem. Because as you know, he's going to end up in Rome. But he is going to be forever now in chains. The rest of the book of Acts is Paul in chains. But even in chains, living more so for the glory of God than he ever has. How do you respond to people who differ from you? How does gentleness appear in your life? It is a fruit of the Spirit. How about self-control? Is it manifest? Is it evident? It's a great thing to look at. You look at Galatians chapter 5. Here's the works of the flesh. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. If the works of the flesh are more prominent than the, work, the, the fruit of the Spirit, you may want to examine your heart. And there's nothing wrong with self-examination. Amen? I don't ever want you guys to be self-deceived. If you're in Christ, the Spirit's with you. And if the Spirit's with you, he's going to produce his fruit in you and through you. Last point, And this is actually what we're going to pivot into next week. Calling in the midst of purpose. Calling in the midst of purpose. I'm, I'm going to say something provocative, bold. Uh, God gives everyone a single purpose in life. Glorify him. That's why you're here. Guess what you're not here to do? Be successful in your jobs. I mean, that's good. But guess what? That's not of eternal value. Guess what God doesn't have you here to do primarily? Get married. I know some of you are like single. Like, I want to get married. Like, that's good, but that's not the end all be all. 
what you have to remember is every single born person born into this world ha- has one single purpose. Glorify God. That's why whatever we eat or drink, Paul says, do it to the glory of God. Amen? And I love eating to the glory of God. I won't get into that now, but I'll, t- I'll talk about that later. You exist for God's glory. Paul has embraced this. And so now he's able to see all things that happen in his life as an opportunity to glorify God. And even when difficulties come, here's the calling. It doesn't change. When you think painful experiences is a means for you to escape, it may not be a means for you to escape, but it may be an opportunity for you to explain. Write down those two words, escape, explain. Because no matter where God has you, he wants you to glorify him. It's a lot easier to honor God and glorify him in the, in the feasting times, amen? It's a lot harder to glorify him in the famine seasons. But Paul recognizes God has me where I am, God's sovereignty, God's, got, God's in control. Paul goes, may I ask you one request? Can I speak to the, <laughs> to the group that wanted to kill me? And I'm sure the Roman commander's going, I guess, <laughs> wacko, right, whatever, go talk to him. And it's amazing how Paul steps forward, and again, he's in the fortress, elevated above the temple floor, and he raises his hand, and a hush falls over the crowd. We don't know how many thousands of people had been gathered for his blood, but all of a sudden, they're quiet as soon as he raised his hand. And what does Paul do? He begins to speak to them in Greek, Hebrew. He knows his audience. Here's what Paul sees at this moment, and we'll unpack it more next week. This is an occasion for me to point these brothers, according to the flesh, to the only hope there is in Jesus Christ. This is not like, raise my hand, now that I have your attention, wait till I get my lawyers, I'm suing every single one of you. Or, Oh, now that I'm with these guys, guess what? You're all dead meat because you don't know who I truly am. Like, no, he raises his hand. And as you see, give you a little brief view into verse 1 of chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, respect, gentleness. Because his desire is to point them to Jesus. I'm going to ask you something, you guys. Paul was more concerned about the spiritual condition of the people than he was about the physical condition of himself. Are we concerned about the spiritual condition of people in our world? Are we concerned about the lost who hate us, who persecute us, who seek to do us harm? Statistics tell us 28% of American adults believe they have a responsibility to share their religious beliefs. That was a poll taken about 20 years ago. So I'm going to tell you right now, the numbers are even worse than that. So one out of four people in this room believe what I'm talking about is important, which really motivates me as a communicator. Only one out of of four of you considers what I'm talking about to be important. 25% feel strongly that they have no such responsibility. So now there's one out of every four of you 
who basically go, you can talk to me the rest of the day. I'm not going to believe what you're, gonna t- you're telling me. These are good numbers, aren't they? No. 64% of American adults believe that all religions basically pray to the same God. So no wonder why there's not this compulsion to be like Christ and Christ alone. You know, if you're religious, if you're spiritual, that's good enough. No, it's not. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a greater recession happening in our country than economically. And that's a spiritual recession that's happening among the people of God in a culture that's so far from God. Thanks be to God that someone shared Jesus Christ with me and took advantage of the opportunity to share their faith with me as a 15-year-old punk teenager who wanted to become the next guitarist for ACDC. Someone loves me with the love of Christ, and all of a sudden, God steps in and saves a kid, August 15th, 1985, in a two-story house in North Phoenix. Silence in my neighborhood, but a party erupted in heaven. Do you remember who shared faith with you? Do you know who was instrumental in your life come to know Christ? It doesn't stop with us. Billy Graham said, every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for past generation, and we cannot bear full responsibility for the next one, but we do have our generation. God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. Here's your calling. Glorify God. Glorify God, that is your purpose, and to seize upon every opportunity you have to point people to Christ. Are you praying for the people in your lives? Are you praying for the people you work with? Are you praying for your neighbors? Are you praying for your family members? Are you praying for the people you play pickleball with? Are you praying for the people you're watching Wimbledon with? Are you, watch, are you praying for the people that are on the other end of the political aisle than you? Are you praying for people who just look different than you? Are you seizing every opportunity, not for an occasion to debate, but to draw them perhaps ever so closer to the Savior's heart? Paul is going to do that in something that you're going to read. If you want to, I dare you, read ahead. But here's Paul standing before a hostile crowd that wants him dead, and he only wants life for them. Ladies and gentlemen, if God is our rock and our high tower, our strong hand and our defender, what are we worried about? What are you worried about? Do great things for God. Expect great things from God and live for his glory. We'll unpack his speech next week. Oh, one of several speeches in the rest of Acts, but so good. I'm praying that somehow God spoke to your heart today. I'm praying that somehow God worked in your heart today. May we live for his glory. May we live for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's a God who loves us as we are where we are. And he, when he steps into our lives, he never leaves us just there. He's always going to grow us in maturity 
to reflect the character of Christ in our world all the more. Praise be to God and all God's people said. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, for the gathering of your people, for the time of connecting with each other, for the time of singing. Lord, thank you that the songs have been weighted with the truths that we've unpacked even in the message today. You deserve all the glory. You deserve all the honor. You deserve all the praise. Because the Lamb has come, laid down His life for His sheep, and you have transformed us, and you continue to transform us. Thank you for your faithfulness, even when we're faithless. Thank you for your kindness, even when we lack demonstrating the kindness to others. May your Spirit continue to move. Water the seeds of truth that have been planted. As we enter into, into hostile territory, may we be men and women of peace, always seeking for an opportunity to share the grace that we've received through him with gentleness and respect. Lord, thank you for being our God. Thank you for calling us to be your people. Keep us in step with the Spirit now and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face towards you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. Love you guys.